0: So, um, for those of you who uh, followed last week, or, or were here when we met on Sunday evening last week, you'll know that we began our um, walk through the Book of Habakkuk. Uh, it's there, tucked away at the uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long, and we looked at the first chapter last week. And if you remember, um, we just, we found that it was uh, Habakkuk who starts by speaking to God and, and delivering a complaint um, that. God's own people have um, have left His ways. That, that, that His people are going to rack and ruin, really, um, and that it is a troubled time because spiritually they are bankrupt. They uh, seem to turn their uh, back on God and His ways, and it's all going to pot. And besides that, um, you know Habakkuk, where well, he comes to God and he says, "How much longer will you put up with this? Why won't you act? Why haven't you act, acted by now?" Um, and God responds in a way that Habakkuk was not expecting and quite frankly did not appreciate. Um, God responds by saying, I know, and I have the Babylonians waiting in the wings. I'm going to send the Babylonians, I'm going to allow them to come and do what the Babylonians do. And um, and maybe it, the hope is that uh, Judah, that southern nation, the southern tribes will return to God, but they are going to suffer the consequences of turning their back on God and Um, of having done so for so long that now is the time for God to act and we left it after Habakkuk's second complaint which is really what are you talking about God how can you possibly be doing this how can you wipe out your people and why are you sending a nation that is even more corrupt even um, worse than we are my first complaint was bad this one is even worse i I can't understand what you're doing. In, in effect, Habakkuk has the courage to say to God, it can't be like this. Explain yourself. And so we left it with Habakkuk waiting. Um, and he said, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. As if to say, I'm not budging, Lord, until you explain. And there I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Habakkuk had... um utter honesty with God, to the point that some of us uh, quake slightly when we read how Habakkuk spoke to God um, and his candid way of complaining to God. But he's also bullshy enough and resilient enough um, to say, I am going to wait for God to explain what's going on. It almost sounds like he's saying, this is not good enough, God. I need to know more. I need to understand. And I will wait until you tell me. Now we know that we can't hold God to account like that. He's not dangling on the end of our string. He's God and we're not. But the beauty of relationship with Habakkuk that we thought about last week in particular was this intimacy where God invites us to bring our struggles and our questions and our frustrations and and our complaints and our lack of understanding and everything else. We are invited to bring that to God rather than stuffing it down and and suppressing it in us or allowing it to spread out and, and affect um, other people and damaged relationships around us. Like God invites us through Habakkuk's example to bring it to him and to speak with him about what's bothering us. So we left Habakkuk metaphorically um, on his watchtower and at his guard post waiting for God to respond. And um, so that's what we're going to look at this week, God's response to Habakkuk's complaint that that God's answer to his first complaint wasn't good enough and and doesn't make sense so he's waiting now god does answer that's the great thing to notice first of all god does answer we don't know how long habakkuk waited this time but god does answer and there's um there are things that god is going to say there's a vision that god is going to paint in words for habakkuk to hold on to but before he gets going with his the content of his answer. He sort of gives a bit of an introduction. And he tells Habakkuk that Habakkuk is going to need to write this down. In those days it was about impressing on a tablet of clay and making those marks. It needs to be remembered. What I'm about to tell you, Habakkuk, you are not to forget and you're to write it down so that people can take it. Uh, and and I wonder if in fact there's something here not only about recording it to remember, but to curate it for the future. Because the next bit that God's going to say in this introduction is that Habakkuk is going to have to wait for the vision that he's about to see uh, have spelled out to him. He's got to wait for it. It's a vision for then, not now. It's somewhere in the future, but it's not for right now. And so Habakkuk is going to have to receive this vision, record it to be able to remember it, to pass it on. And he is going to have to wait. Because it's not going to happen right now. But the last thing God um, says before he gets going with this vision is to assure Habakkuk that it will happen. It's a cast iron guarantee. This will happen. We thought about God's faithfulness this morning. Um, and so God brings sort of all the weight of his faithfulness to bear here and says, in effect, I have spoken. This is the vision. This is what will take the place. It will happen. You can take that one to the bank, Habakkuk. So this is what God's going to say right at the start of his response. Before we ever get to see what this vision is, he primes Habakkuk to be ready to receive it. So um, if you turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to start from verse 2. Because verse 1 was Habakkuk um, telling God that he was going to wait until God spoke. So now God is going to speak. Here we go. Then the Lord replied, Write down a revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So there's the, that's the, uh, the introduction that he gives. And now he's going to describe the enemy. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Now, I don't know about your Bible that you're looking in here, In mine in the NIV. We've got two little dashes either side of that, but the righteous phrase. And that's to say that it doesn't quite belong there. It's sort of in parenthesis. God is describing the enemy, and in the middle of that, we get something different, a contrast. So really, in describing the enemy, he's saying his desires are not upright. Indeed, wine betrays him. Some translations say wealth betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Now that is a pretty dark portrait of this enemy of God, the one who would set himself up against God, God's will and God's ways. And he's um, described, he is portrayed as somebody who is proud and corrupt um, that has an insatiable appetite um, and, it, but, and yet is captivated somehow by the demands of the lifestyle, the wealth or the wine, whichever it is um, but it seems to give this impression of a lifestyle uh, that has ensnared them, this enemy, that his pursuit of these things is in, has in fact entrapped him the enemy is pompous, yet not at peace with himself. It's quite, a, it's quite a dark portrayal of God's enemy, because God understands what's going on. Habakkuk has accused him of not knowing what's happening, of, of sitting on his hands, of not realising how serious things are. And it's like God is saying, no, I do know what's happening. This, this is the nature of the one who sets himself up as my enemy. And it's, it's fairly dark. God, God's not hoodwinked. But hidden in the midst of that dark port- portrait of the enemy is one line. And I refer to it there. And you'll see it's contrasted because it's, uh, it's got those two little dashes around it. Like, like, here's a thought that doesn't fit with the rest of it. And it doesn't fit because it's such a shining example of a contrast to what he's just described. And he says in verse 4, so he's describing the, the enemy, the, the, uh, the, char- the character of the one who sets himself up against God. But he says, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness or by faith. And it's one small phrase. It's only half a verse. And it's hidden in this dark passage uh, in a book that's only three chapters long um, with a title that many of us struggle to pronounce, let alone spell correctly. And I did have to have a few goes before I worked out how many B's and how many K's are in the name. But it's, it's hidden away in, in this, this, the nether regions of the Old Testament. And yet this one phrase is such, um, such a high point in the Old Testament and in this particular book that Paul himself when he's writing to, the, to new Christians and to new churches um, later, many years later, many hundreds of years later, Paul himself quotes this. And he uses it as one of the foundational texts for the doctrine of salvation through faith, as opposed to salvation um, because you fulfilled the law or because you've done good works or by your own effort or your own merit. Paul makes a big thing about salvation being by faith alone. When he writes to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he's explaining about the difference between law and grace. And he says, clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because, and then he quotes this verse from Habakkuk, because the righteous will live by faith. And if we look in Romans, um, Romans 1, Paul writes, for in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written and here comes habakkuk again the righteous will live by faith so it's the heart of the gospel message and it's here it's here in little old habakkuk it's the heart of the message that being made right with god um That forgiveness that we receive, the acceptance that we know, um, being part of his family um, and assured of our eternal destination um, with God. All of that, Paul writes, requires faith and faith alone. Paul claims that the trust we put in Jesus and the belief that he alone can save us. And then by his resurrection, um, he has saved us. All of that, this is what credits us with eternal life. Not the good works, not doing the right thing, not going to church on Sunday, not being born into a Christian country or even a Christian family. It is righteousness by faith. And so in this future vision that God is going to lay out before Habakkuk, where justice is done, where wrongs are righted and the kingdom of God's reign breaks through irreversibly and totally, those who will live in such a kingdom, in such a vision, those will be, though, the people who have faith, are faithful, as we thought about this morning, but who have faith. And just as with the vision of justice that is about to unfold, and we'll see in Habakkuk, being saved from the consequences we deserve by our actions that fall far short of God's perfect standard, and let's face it, that, that includes all of us, being saved from those consequences, it can only come about through God's mercy. And we may work for justice, and we should as God's people, but we cannot justify anyone before God. And nor may we stand in judgment over anyone's soul. That's God's work. And we may work for peace, and we should, but we cannot gain peace with God for anyone. God has already done all that is necessary all that needs to be done for each human being on this planet to live at peace with him and be restored forever into that good and loving relationship with their creator and their loving heavenly parent. However, no one may truly live in that peace unless they can find faith to believe all that God has done to make it possible. So by believing, we will be made righteous, that is, declared innocent and no longer liable for punishment, the punishment we deserve. We will be made righteous by God when we believe. So it is true what Habakkuk Habakkuk records God saying, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul adds emphasis to this in Ephesians. Just to make it really clear, he says, and not by works as if our works could save us, so that no one can boast. And perhaps the anthem of our day, I did it my way, is a prime example of us striving to do it our way and to achieve something of lasting value in our own strength. Yet God says, no, only by faith, only by putting your trust in me. So there's the heart of the gospel. We just stumbled across in this um, slightly hidden away part of the Old Testament, um, but it's obviously important enough for Paul to have picked it up and to have used it a couple of times in some of his really fun foundational teachings of the early church. But back to Habakkuk, and we're in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, and we're going to be seeing the, um, the justice of God being described. And he describes it in five ways in which tables will be turned. And they're in, each of them are introduced by the words woe to the man who. Um, and we will see how justice will mean, as I say, that the tables will be turned on the enemies of God, those who are not living according to God's justice and God's um, compassion and, and, and everything that he had set up as a way to live a godly life. But before we get going with that, and looking at the text, I just want to ask two questions, because Hebrew is beautifully ambiguous, and in some ways, I think they relish the fact that their their language is sometimes ambiguous, because it gives a richness and a do- uh, another dimension to what they want to say in Hebrew poetry. And I take this from my Hebrew lecturer at college. So I don't speak Hebrew. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a Hebrew class, but It is ambiguous, and therefore we're right to ask questions and wonder with this text. Who is it who is speaking? And who is it who's being judged? Now the first question, who is speaking? um, It's, as I say, it's ambiguous, because we believe these words are coming from God, but God puts them in the mouth of somebody else. We just read a description of the enemy, see the enemy, and that carries on until God says, He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. And then as the vision unfolds, um, in verse 6, God continues to say, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? All of them seems to imply the very nations that have been gathered by the enemy. Those peoples who have been taken captive, they're the ones who are going to be speaking. And I think it is significant that at least some of the words of judgment are put in the mouths of the victims. I think that is significant because we often say, don't we, that God is the God of the poor. God is on the side of the downtrodden, of the oppressed, um, of all of those who have suffered injustice. Um, And so it's quite poignant that at least the start of this vision is, is described by the very people who have suffered at the hands of the enemy of God. But who is this enemy of God who's being judged? You might think it's really obvious that it's the Babylonians who are about to come and invade Judah and uh, cause all sorts of dreadful atrocities to God's people. It may be obvious to you that it's it's the Babylonians that God is seeking ju- judgment against. But it's not necessarily so. Habakkuk's first complaint was that God's own people were, um, were behaving in ways that are very Babylonian, that meant extortion, that meant um, cruelty and um, lack of compassion and, and false witness. And, and all of that sort of corruptness, Habakkuk's complaint to begin with was that God's own people behave like this. So who is being judged in this, in this vision of God's justice being poured out across the nations? It might be the ambiguity is there because actually anyone, anyone who behaves in a Babylonian way, um, as opposed to a Yahweh way, are li- liable for judgment. God doesn't just say that his justice is for one people group. It is, it is justice, full stop. So we might want to think, who is it that is being, um, who is being judged? And yes, we're going to see a reversal of fortunes. We're going to see the tables turned and it's described in five woes. Um, And it starts with this formula, woe to him who, and then carries on. So we'll crack on and have a look quickly at the five woes. You might want to go back over and have a look at it again. Um, We are going to be starting to look from verse six together. And the first woe um, highlights unjust economics. Um, and we'll see that in verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. You might think some of that is a bit strong. It's a bit strong language. and We don't quite like the idea of this sort of violent language. However. When you think about the work that, um, for example, that CAP does, Christians Against Poverty, and you hear the stories of people who are trapped in poverty and in debt, um, very often through choices that they have made, but also often um, from things outside their control, loss of income, uh, a slow benefit system, whatever it is, and the loan sharks are there circling. And they take one loan after another to try and get themselves out of a a difficulty and end up in far more difficulty. The sense of being trapped by this, the sense of being hunted down by debt collectors, by um, bailiffs, whoever it might be. There's a very great sense of fear. And we know that it drives many people to the darkest place where they actually consider ending their life because they can't cope with the, the pressure of being hunted for this money that they have no way of repaying. What a situation to be in. Can you imagine for them the idea that the tables are turned and those who are, um, are using extortion or using fear tactics or whatever it might be, that the tables are turned and that they're, they're the ones they owe money to who are pressurizing so much should feel what it is like to be in their position you see how that might be a justifiable plea and a sense of justice that they might cry out for? Let them know what it's like to feel trapped and to be hunted. So God is saying for people who use extortion, for people who um, oppress individuals, then the tables will be turned and they will know what it is to be hunted themselves. They will tremble because God is not a God of oppression and injustice. He even gives rules on how to lend money, how to help people out of, out of difficult times. And he says even one of his laws is you will not take a poor man's cloak in uh, assurance against a debt. You won't leave that person cold and unable to sleep at night. You know, there are limits and there must be limits because we must guard against um, extortion and oppression. We must always have compassion. So here we have the first example of somebody having the tables turned on them. Because you have plundered many nations, now it's not just individuals and nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So there's been terrible destruction, but God is saying, Do you know what, when justice comes, you will know what it feels like to be the victim and not the perpetrator this time. The next woe comes to those who are feathering their own nest. We see that in the next few verses. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So here is somebody, and again, it may be a nation, it may be individuals, but here God is speaking against those who will. Um, who will exploit others in order to make themselves better off and not just better off but by by so doing to expect them to avoid any uh, any downfall any difficulty that they are looking out for themselves and their own and perhaps tread down treading on treading on loads of other people in the process to be able to get everything that they need for themselves to avoid disaster for them. Um, A very, very small image of this we we saw right at the start of the pandemic when people were stockpiling. You know, I'm not saying this is this is what God's necessarily talking about, but we see the we see the tendency in ourselves, don't we, when we think there's a scarcity that we'll get there first, we'll grab it so that it's okay for us and our family. And actually, as a nation, we've been doing this for generations. The fact that the world has enough resources for everybody, and yet so many live in poverty, acute poverty. It's, it's horrendous injustice, and it's injustice that we in the Western world are perpetrating all the time. Now, it's very difficult for us to know how to help change that, but there are ways as Christians that we can stand against that, because it's on God's heart that we shouldn't just be looking out for ourselves and our own. Yes, we have a duty to our, a responsibility to our family, but never, never to exploit somebody else so that we can gain profit by that and trying to secure your own safety and avoid ruin at the expense of others. Well, that is, that is liable to be very disappointing because quite frankly, our, we know our security can never be in bricks and mortar. It can never be in a bank balance. It can never be in our promotion and our career. Our security can only ever be secure in, in God. And so these people are going to find that they come crashing down their house that's to say their family their wealth their honor their status their name that that will all be it has been built up dishonestly and it will come to nothing and we see throughout scripture don't we how inanimate objects sort of cry out to god we saw the earth cry out to god when it had received abel's blood when cain had killed him and and we hear of the the trees of the field clapping their hands in celebration of god we hear jesus threatening Pharisees that if he, if he shuts up the crowd on his entry into Jerusalem then the stones themselves will cry out. Well here we have the threat that the stones and the fabric of the building itself, this, this image of the house, the reputation, honour of the person, that the fabric of the house will itself speak out against them and will be their downfall and their loss of everything that they built up. So we've got unjust economics, feathering our own nests. We have slavery and exploitation. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I was beginning to prepare this series, and I was reading that, as, uh, as the, the, um, the protests were gathering pace and, um, and the statues were being pulled down and people were crying out against the injustices that had built the city, for example, the city of Bristol. And it really struck me. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. I don't yet know how we, as the future generations of those that did build in such a way how we put that right but as i read this i realized i've never been one for looking back and apologizing apologizing and apologizing for what i had nothing to do with but my ancestors did but there's something here about the generational um, guilt and something about a city that has been built in this way god cries out god demands justice the people demand justice. And there is something, there is a prophetic voice that the church needs to have. And I don't know yet how we, here in Chudley for example, how we voice that. But I don't think we can just brush it aside and say, oh it was a previous generation. There is something here in Habakkuk that spoke to me about the need to put things right. Because this is a vision that God gave Habakkuk for the future. It may still, well, in many ways it is still for our future, somewhere, some way in the future for us. But there is a work to do for us to consider how do we um, work towards this vision. As the Lord says in this particular vision of the reversal, that those who work now and pour all their energies into building and creating, it says nothing, it's, it, it's empty, it's meaningless. So I think there is something in here that we need to take note of, particularly at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement and the whole um, outcry against injustice and God speaking and saying, it is not right that cities were built this way. But I don't know yet, I'm speaking to your own, your own minister here, I don't know yet what we do in Chudley about this. And we need to pray into this. We need to ask for God's insight. But every now and again, in these dark, woeful um, vision that God's giving, which can, it can seem like his judgment and his justice is very, very down, uh, very dark. However, we have these little highlights, don't we? So the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that is something that we are still working towards and longing for. Um, And, Yeah, that's a a high point. Hold on to that one as we go on through. Uh, So we've got the fourth woe, which is woe to those, um, and it talks about abuse of people and abuse of nature, of the environment. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. Again, a very obvious reversal of fortune that where neighbours, and that might be neighbouring nations or or personal ones, one neighbours, where we have um, exploited other people and um, where the enemy of God has um, abused other people and brought shame on them, then it will be reversed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And your destruction of animals will terrify you. And here comes a repetition: for you have shed human blood, you have destroyed the lands and cities and everyone in them. So that's uh, that's a repeat of verse eight that we saw before. But the uh, the reference to Lebanon, um, it's the trees, the forests of Lebanon that are that are being referred to here, just with the name Lebanon. And some translations actually say, you know, you have cut down all the trees. Um, and the destruction of animals, um, the mistreatment of wild animals, put in another version, that's a total disregard for God's created world um, and, and the exploitation of the environment. Um, besides the shedding of human blood and the destruction of lands and cities, it's just a total mess. It's, it's total um, yeah, a, a distortion of what God was, wanted for humanity. But he is saying, "Woe to you who don't look after um, the environment, who actually abuse it to such an extent." So, the final one, and this is probably key, key to it all, that out of this has flowed everything else, is idolatry. It's perhaps the engine that drives those nations and perhaps individuals who are Babylonian in nature. And it's repeatedly been shown to be the downfall of God's own people, this idolatry. Again and again, they've fallen away into idolatry. Not just drifting away, but fallen into idolatry. And this is the only woe in the vision that begins with uh, like a preamble. Just to make it really clear, so we're absolutely clear uh, what power a piece of wood has, and how it compares with Almighty God. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For The one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him, there it comes, woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up, can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So the idolatry of the nations is, is a major issue for those that would want to follow God. But actually he is said to put uh, him first to worship him alone and yet consistently his own people fall away and worship others. The Babylonians are just as guilty, if not more so. Back in chapter one, when... Uh, when Habakkuk was complaining about God's use of the Babylonians to bring about judgment, he reminds God that for the Babylonians, even their strength is considered a, a god to them. And they worship, it was described as the net that ensnares the people, the net in which people have been caught. It's like their military power, their strength, their, their riches, all of this is as gods to them. And yet there they are. they um, they're dedicating their lives to these things, and yet there's no power in them for good, only power to ensnare. Can lifeless stones wake up? Can, can wood come to life? Of course not. Yet they're wasting their own breath on something that has no breath in it, no ruach, no spirit in it. And then we have this other high point, a reminder. The Lord is in his holy temple, Instead of saying stupid things to bits of wood and stone, instead of using your breath for, for uttering nonsense, come to life, wake up, up to these idols, the command is here, let all the earth be silent before him. Stop your silly chattering. Stop your babbling to other idols. Stop giving yourself over um, in worship to other things. Recognize God. And be silent before him. So that's the vision that God gives to um, to Habakkuk. There is justice in there. There is judgment in there. And there are high points that remind him that it's it's not judgment for judgment's sake. It's not punishment for punishment's sake. It's because there is um, there is God and God is in His temple. God reigns, and the earth will recognize that. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will. Uh, will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea so we have god's judgment explained in these five woes and it's not only in the old testament it, did, did anybody notice um a sort of foreshadowing of jesus's talk of of this upside down kingdom that he announced where the first will be last and the last will be first this reversal of fortunes where even in the um the parable we looked at this morning with the two sons, Jesus was telling it because he wanted to show that it was going to be the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the sinners who who come to God, who will actually make it into the kingdom rather than those who just say the religious stuff and don't mean it and don't live it out in their lives. Jesus was consistently um, there with the wrong types of people, those who should have been marked for judgment. In fact, he came to save them. And so this upside down kingdom, this reversal, this turning of the tables continues with Jesus coming and announcing the kingdom of God um, in his time. And we might read some of this and think that this is horrible. How how can God do this to people? How can he heap shame on them? How can he he allow people to be um, in so much distress? How can he bring about this sort of judgment on someone and these punishments? Well perhaps if if we have never been a victim of violence or abuse or discrimination, um, we won't sense the justice in what is being done. I'm not talking about vengeance, I'm not talking about asking for revenge, but amongst people who have suffered, there is such such a dissonance between what has happened to them and what they know should be right. That there is this demand for justice for putting right of what went so terribly wrong. So if you're viewing this as victim, then you might be saying cheering God on and saying, "Yeah, bring it on, God! Let them know what it feels like." Then they might understand. If you're not viewing it like that, I wonder if there's a sense in which some of us recognise something of ourselves in it, and that is a really uncomfortable place to be in. So you know, I'm there too as I read this stuff. Am I actually? perpetrator of some of this stuff that God says should not be it is it is all everything in this sense depends on perspective and we have to bear that in mind when we look at the judgment the judgment writings but we don't live in the Old Testament right we live on the, this side of Easter and that makes all the difference And that, in a sense, is the scandal of the grace of God. The scandal is that, yes, justice demands that the the tables are turned and those who have done dreadful things should have dreadful things done to them. That is justice. But God's grace means that, in those words from that wonderful hymn of Newton, that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. The vilest offender, the most Babylonian of Babylonians, who comes to God and says, I have sinned. I am in need of forgiveness. They receive a pardon. They are made righteous. They are no longer liable for this judgment that God speaks of. And that is scandalous, particularly if we're a victim Yet it is the truth of the gospel and it is the scandal of grace. Because as we saw right at the start, the righteous, those that God declares right, not in our own eyes, but if God declares you righteous, you will live by faith, by your faithfulness. And so whether you consider yourself victim in any of this or even partially perpetrator, the grace of God is still extended to you, and when you are made right with God, you will live because of your faith and because of what Jesus has done for you. God's justice is still waiting to be brought about in a hundred percent. We are still waiting for that vision when God's glory fills the earth, and there will be tables turned. There will be. Uh, Reckoning, there will be justice and things will be put right, and that will be uncomfortable for some of us, particularly if we haven't surrendered to God and received the scandalous grace that He offers the worst perpetrator, the vilest offender who truly believes. So, if you don't know that gift of God's grace and forgiveness, then I encourage you to pray, to talk to people, to ask about it, to get in touch but to discover what that scandal of grace can mean for you. God is a just God and he is so loving that he sent his only son to die in our place so that we could be called righteous and we can live. Amen.